0: Hello everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. This archive is from October 4th, 2012, and features the incredible Andrea Brenneke of Seattle. Please enjoy this archive and also check out other archives from this year and last year's series, as well as upcoming guests, resources, and a discussion board, At dopeace.us. That's d o p e a c e dot u s. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for the Peace Alliance's Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is an ongoing tele-series, council series, formulated to be the People's Council and a virtual circle for exploring connection, insight, education, um, finding resources, models, and tools but inform the justice conversation in these very compelling times surrounding the topics of restorative justice and practices, unitive of justice, transformation in conflict, and related topics. Now most of you, if you haven't been here before, um, I'll just uh, line up a few little notes about the way these roll. Again this is a template of a virtual circle so throughout the evening I would like to invite you to please press 1 on your telephone keypad even when, um, as many of you know, we go into a little section at about the half hour and towards the end of the call where we, we get into some really great dialogue with our special guests. Um, but, please uh, do feel free if something's really burning for you and you'd like to comment or um, ask a question throughout the whole evening again, press one on your keypad, your telephone keypad to do to do so and I'll try and get to you as best I can. So as you many of you may know who have joined us before, this is an hour long telecounsel, and we post the audio archives from our series at DoPeace.us and you just go to that website and it's like a Ning network for the Peace Alliance and you go in there and you can log in, you can um, post your own resources, you can look up the archives from this season's series thus far as well as last season. I've also posted up there some special conversations we had this summer during the summer of peace with Arun Gandhi, uh, Gandhiji's grandson and uh, many of you are familiar of course with Dominic Barter and and restorative circles and conversations with him are posted there as well. And many, many amazing people doing on the ground work in their communities, in their own immediate lives. I, I am so honored to continue hosting this series and I hope that it is a place for us to come together and find out information that is useful um, both in our individual uh, service and as well as in our, our communities and beyond. So without further ado, I am really excited tonight to be welcoming our very special guest Her name is Andrea Brennicki, and she is from Seattle, Washington. She has uh, extraordinary training academically, and she has such a depth of experience in the justice conversation. She holds a J.D. from Harvard Law School and a B.A. from the University of Washington. She's a passionate advocate for justice and a facilitator of individual and community healing and empowerment. She practices civil rights and employment law at McDonald, Hogue and Bayless in Seattle. She's a tenacious litigator and a strategic negotiator, and she has um, spent quite a bit of time working with, uh, she she calls herself a, a practitioner and an apprentice to Dominic Barter, and I had mentioned him a moment ago um, with Restorative Circles. I'd also like to just direct you to some extraordinary uh, articles that are posted in the email that was sent out to you today that will also be up at the archive um, for this call, and it's a Seattle Times article that that talks about uh, some of what we'll be exploring tonight um, and speaks to the extraordinary um, model of sorts that is a working model and that is being tilled uh, even as we speak. And I'm sure Andrea will be sharing about that tonight. But it regards the the shooting of John T. Williams in Seattle and what occurred in the sequences and the connections and uh, the bridge building really between um, the community, the family, Uh, and the um, police department. So Andrea, I am so honored to welcome you tonight. And tonight, um, if you would just um, start out by sharing a little bit about what brought you first of all perhaps into the path um, that took you to Harvard Law School, um, and then maybe share a little bit about uh, your journey otherwise and where you are at this point. In what you're doing in the justice conversation and in your practices in the community.
1: Okay, Welcome. thank thank you, Molly. It's so great to be part of the conversation. So stepping back, I guess I went to law school um, after having grown up in Seattle. I'm a Seattle native and very much part of this community. I've been part of. Um, the public schools and voluntary desegregation in our public schools and um, over time became um, aware of many struggles for justice in our community and and was involved as a community activist in in a lot of electoral and other um, engagements for justice, including um, the peace movement, the sanctuary movement for um, justice in Central America. Um, I was involved in the um, first campaign uh, for the first openly gay legislator in Washington State. I was involved in um, some city um, neighborhood activism and changing the way city government worked and, in, and um, was part of the Rainbow Coalition back in 88 when we were trying to elect Jesse Jackson and was part of developing a platform and envisioning a world that worked for everyone. So very involved in progressive politics and saw the possibility of law as a tool for social change. Uh, when I graduated from college, um, I started working as a paralegal and worked for a law firm that had a practice that was um, oriented toward uh, plaintiff's side litigation and was honored to work with a lot of lawyers who were looking at ways of making impact through the law, um, including possible claims on major toxic torts, and, and then was involved in a case... Um, challenging the um, murder of some labor union activists in Seattle by the Marcos regime. And um, so I was involved with, with amazing legal work and decided that, yes, law could be an avenue towards social change and decided that um, as a woman in this world, I wanted a, an advanced degree. I wanted to have access to um, those deeper conversations about what we do in society and went to law school. Um, and I did, that, um, I did that with some apprehension, though, because I had heard that law school changes the way you think. And one of my mentors here in Seattle, um, Larry Gossett, um, heard me say this and, and just said, remember where you came from. And through my law school career, I put that as my pin on my bank account and always sort of as a, as a reminder, remembered where I came from. And so when I graduated from law school, Um, I had explored, you know, various aspects of civil rights and human rights and had been involved with uh, Battered Women's Project there and um, involved in some of the really um, meaningful change activities that were happening around that campus, around diversity, around public interest commitment, around um, women and violence. And then chose to come back to Seattle and, and put my... Um, commitment to work um, in the law, working at McDonald, Hogan, Bayless as a civil rights and employment lawyer, and for 20 years I've followed this path of representing individuals and um, classes in matters that um, matter most in terms of um, insti- institutional change, constitutional rights, and um, individual. Um, individual accountability um, for um, injustice. And so I have been a passionate advocate in the traditional system. Um, And then more recently, um, as I was developing a spiritual practice, um, realized that there were different ways of engaging um, conflict and have been exploring how to integrate my, um, my social values, my more spiritual values. And that of engaging conflict, and that's what led me to restorative circles.
0: Mm. Well, what, what strikes me as so powerful about um, you and your service is the fact that you you have this this background and this very um, stellar academic training, and that you also um, are in the midst of of something pretty. Uh, significant as far as your role in the John T. Williams case. And, um, I, would just like to say, uh, for those of you who are just joining us, we're, we're talking with Andrea Brennicki, um, and I want to point to, uh, the Tikkun article also that you, you wrote. Um, for those of you who may not have seen the Tikkun issue, Uh, from, I believe it was last winter, so uh, winter 2012 issue. It was uh, a feature on restorative justice and Andrea's article called A Restorative Circle in the Wake of a Police Shooting was published in that issue. And if you don't have a copy of it, I would highly recommend picking one up. So Andrea, what, what really, um, is powerful to me is it seems that you're, you're a bridge. You're build, you, you have the ability to really build bridges given your training and also given um, your discoveries in the, the process with Dominic and in your own practice as you're speaking to. So maybe we could start uh, kind of going deeper into that area of uh, with this particular case that happened, mm-hmm. um, the, again, the John T. Williams murder. And if you could, mm-hmm. could kind of set that up in a way that, that shows how you did the bridge building that you did do.
1: Yes. Okay, and and because you mentioned bridge, I actually want to um, elaborate on that for a minute. Because in exploring this work and in, in doing in doing my traditional legal work in the traditional um, system, I have I have really learned to value um, the importance of our legal system, of our justice process, of the jury trial, and. Um, and all that it allows for people who've been harmed and injured and whose rights have been violated to seek justice and to require, um, really, that, that we enforce laws that otherwise would be dead and, and not alive if they weren't on the books. But also in that process, I've represented a lot of people who've been um, deeply, deeply wounded and injured. And the legal process itself has a, takes a lot of time. Um, it doesn't address some of the underlying harm. And for people who have experienced great tragedy, it often doesn't bring the restoration of a sense of well-being. Um, it often, it often, in the process, creates um, greater divisions among people. When sometimes some of the, the um, most painful aspects of a conflict are the broken relationships. And so in my legal work over time, I've, all, I've always looked for ways in which where out of tragedy we can bring a case, we can get the reparations, we can get money or whatever the legal system can provide, but through settlement or other um, injunctive relief, we can also get lasting change. So changes to policies, um, injunctions to require institutions to do things differently, increased training, so that these things don't happen again, um, and sometimes um, things like funding um, programs that will make a difference in a community um, that will be meaningful to avoid the problems that happened before. And so I've always, I've always been compelled to try to address these larger, larger issues of how conflict impacts real people and real communities. Um, but I think the compelling issue for me is that as a, as a practitioner, I can do that work um, and I can sort of bridge, if you will, um, that work in the legal system and the community. But the bigger challenge for me right now is really to not think about bridging two different worlds but integrating them. And how do we actually shift the whole way we contemplate conflict and how we engage it from a system that's adversarial and Mm -hmm. where truth is based upon um, two sides and two different positions and a jury or a judge decides at the end and the response is more of a punitive response how do we actually transform that and integrate more of a, of a holistic and um, um, uh, working model that would allow people not to be running out of fear but out of love, that, a situation that recognizes that we really are all in this together and that somehow truth might come instead of from a cross-examination, instead possibly from a safe, process in which people Mm. feel comfortable being vulnerable and sharing the truth about what happened with the possibility Mm. that even though people do really, really bad things, there might be an underlying good reason. And if we all take the time to understand better and take responsibility for what we do, um, maybe we can together create action plans and ways of moving forward that actually build trust and build community and build the world we want to live in. So that's the challenge, I think, is not to bridge these worlds, but to integrate the idea of the shared humanity mm. and how do we then move our whole system and our whole society forward.
0: Mm. Wow, that's beautifully said. Thank you. I, I love that. The, um, the word integration, um, that, that just feels so resonant. And uh, when, I, when I say um, bridge – I, I would just like to share that what I feel um, to be um, omnipresent in the justice conversation right now, and even in my own thoughts about how how it works in our community here, is mm-hmm. um, leading. Ha- how do we make the um, connections with the existing systems? And and the answer to that is probably. Simpler than we make it to be. Mm-hmm. I would guess. Yes, fair <laughs> but, enough. Fair enough. I was just on a, a, a webinar um, a couple days a couple days ago with uh, Howard Zare and a couple of police officers from back east uh, for something that EMU put together, and one of the primary uh, conversations that was was really up at the top for um, not only the speakers but also the the webinar uh, circle was this this relationship building relationships and building mm-hmm. uh, not you know you speak so beautifully to um, the, how we can can come together um, and be vulnerable and and um, and see uh, through a different lens. The conversation of justice, but in a practical sense,
1: mm-hmm. there's
0: also uh, on a lot of people's minds. It seems, you know, how how is it that we, um, so to speak, bridge into mm-hmm. um, the the system and share and mm-hmm. converse about what justice really is
1: right so so let me I'll just share with you how i've been approaching this, and it may be helpful um, so for me, part of it was um first of all seeking uh a different way, knowing that there was some way to integrate, not knowing what it was. And then I, I was fortunate to have Dominic Barter be in town for a workshop in Seattle. And when I discovered this, the practice of restorative circles, I recognized that this was a practice that created a safe um, container to engage conflict. And I could see how if we created systems that used this as one of the means to engage conflict, that we would be in a position where we could actually take on some of those really hard issues that seem otherwise untouchable and seem somewhat hopeless. And so I was excited simply to imagine a different way and to say, I could do this. This is a simple process. I could assist in facilitating this. I could you know, imagine my communities, my families, my, um, my spiritual community, my workplace, my neighborhoods, my city, um, using a system like this, you know, as a parallel system to the existing justice system. We don't have to start over. We just create a parallel system, and whichever one works better, that'll be used. And wouldn't it be powerful if we had that as an alternative? So I was, I was just immediately enamored by this and then started practicing the work. And the practice is. is Part of also, how you build um, a sense of competence in it, which is that none of us are ever um, i think you know going to be um, capable of stepping into something and feeling and not feeling a lot of fear and trepidation about engaging big conflicts. But by practicing it, we get a little more experience and then realize, okay, well, it's worth trying because the results are so good. And mm-hmm. so we started doing practice groups here and, um, and we also had engaged a group that was talking about police issues and um, ongoing issues of mistrust in, in the environment. And we envisioned a process where there could be like a restorative circle in a police context. I mean, literally we were talking about how would that work and could it work and so we were dreaming out loud in a way. And so when this tragic shooting happened in Seattle um, where a police officer shot a Native American carver who was walking along the street with a carving knife and his piece of wood um, with literally seconds um, of engagement beforehand. It was a tragedy that just hit home. It, it, for someone like me, and for others in, in the legal world who've done police misconduct um, work, it just looked like a bad shooting. It looked like, a, you know, like, like his rights were violated. We didn't know all the facts, but we were really concerned. Our office was like, you know, this would be the kind of case we would want. And then in my mind, I thought, this is such a tragedy. This is, you know, the kind of situation where um, the community, which was in up Quite quite a bit upset and in uproar. There were protests on the streets. People saw, um, um, people saw what was going on and, and felt um, a great sense of distrust and anger about it. I thought this, you know, this is the kind of thing where we had been imagining. How do we respond, right? How do we respond differently? So in this case. Um, one of my law partners um, was contacted by the family and started working um, on the legal aspects of representation. And and in this case, it, it involved an inquest. We have a, um, a fairly unusual process here where there's actually a trial to determine what the cause of death is um, and that that informs later prosecution decisions and other things. So we knew that there would be a legal process involving proof about what had happened um, and the cause of the death. And while that was happening, the family was still um, living with um, with a lot of uncertainty. They had lost their brother. They were in Deep shock and grief and sorrow over that, and then they had ongoing interactions with the police, and those That's were scary because there was so much um, community uproar about this, and the police were dealing with the discomfort of that. As was the family, the family, um, seven generations of Carvers were still carving. They had knives and they had wood, and in the interactions with some of the um, some of the officers, um, there were there. Were there was discomfort and, um, and the family felt harassed and there were things said that were um, provocative and the possibility of further violence and further issues erupting was just so um, apparent. Um, and Rick Williams, who uh, was the eldest um, brother and became the spokesperson of the family, was really strong in his desire to honor his brother and to honor him as a master carver and to handle this in a peaceful way. And there were a lot of people pressuring him to do the opposite. And, and you know, the rage in him um, and old training would have suggested to do the opposite. but But coming from a First Nations tradition, he listened to the voices of his ancestors, and it was to do this peacefully and to do this right. And as hard as that was, that was his directive. And so in the midst of all the... Um, chaos on the streets and the protests and these very uncomfortable, unproductive public meetings where people were expressing their anger at the police and the police sat up there listening but not being able to say anything. We were really looking for another way. And I, I think of this as sort of a divine mistake, but there, the police department um, Sort of admittedly didn 't have very good relationships with the Native American community, and at the beginning they were seeking um, they were seeking contact and and um, meetings and understandings and the family understood that the police had wanted to meet with them, and at first they didn't want to meet with the they weren't ready for that. But then, as things kept going and there were these uncomfortable interactions, um, they did want to. And so, in terms of building relationships and building the possibility for handling conflict in a new way, I reached out to someone I actually knew in the department, in the command staff, from you know, years of, of community work, and uh-huh. um, said, OK, I understand that the department wants to meet with the family and they're ready to meet now. And he laughed. He said, oh, no, actually, that was a misunderstanding. They really, that wasn't an invitation. Um, And I said, well, then perhaps we ought to consider it one because, you know, the family, I think it would do it would do good for the family to have that opportunity. And so they honored that, and they quickly made a meeting, not with the chief, but with an assistant chief and the Office of Professional Accountability Representative. And it was a professional, nice meeting um, immediately following the funeral of John T. Williams, and it was not very meaningful, and it didn't result in much, and it really didn't, didn't get to the heart of what was going on or what needed to happen. But afterwards they, afterwards, they still wanted a meeting with the chief. And so at that point, because I had um, I had learned this work and I had seen the failure of this traditional meeting and I knew that the legal process wasn't going to address the needs of the family or what was happening in that emergent conflict, I suggested we do something different. I suggested we hold a restorative circle. And I, I had um, no idea whether they would say yes. I shared with... Um, I shared the information with another contact I had made there, and she shared it with the chief, and he said yes. He was willing to try something new. And that was, it was as simple as envisioning it and um, asking for it to happen and for everyone to, you know, trust enough that we could create a safe process around this, that it would be better than not doing anything. And I think in this case, um, the urgency of the situation really called for action. And there wasn't a lot of time to, you know, build a formal structure. We just had to do something. And so um, having an available process that we could then create some safety um, and some parameters around and step into was actually comforting because how else would we have had a really meaningful conversation. So within two weeks of the shooting, we actually had that restorative circle. And when I think about that, that's really quite remarkable.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. And,
1: in some ways, it was spirit led because when I met the family um, to get prepare for that first traditional meeting, I met them in a um, in one of the social service agencies that serves native american the Native American community here and I walked in the door and I asked to see the family um, for our pre meeting and While the family was downstairs in the traditional conference room with a uh, with square walls and a table in the middle the front desk person misdirected me into the healing circle, they have this gorgeous, round room that's used for um, traditional healing ceremonies in that same building, and so I walked into this room for the first time, and it was perfect for a restorative circle and so I had this notion that okay, this is where we are meant to be we 're going to do this other thing first, but ultimately this is where we 're going to come so it was uh, I, I saw that as a as a as a big hint. <laughs> <laughs> to follow the
0: restorative path. <laughs> well, I just want to just want to take a pause for a moment and welcome those of you who are just joining the circle tonight. Uh, we're talking with the incredible Andrea Brennicki, who is a mediator and uh, a Harvard-trained attorney. She's a restorative circles practitioner. And it also, I mentioned an article, uh, there's a couple articles actually, um, one that's a Seattle Times article and another in Tikkun Magazine, which was a part of the restorative justice issue uh, from earlier this year. And then, so there, there's going to be a few resources that we'll be posting along with the archive from tonight. And again, just to remind you, if, if those of you in the circle tonight, Anybody who'd like to, t- to ask Andrea a question or make a comment, please press one on your telephone keypad um, throughout the rest of tonight 's call and i 'll do my best to get to you. Mm-hmm. Um, we love to have conversations and open it up to uh, see what what 's on people 's minds because I know there's a lot of people out there that are doing on the ground work in various regions, uh, not only in the u s but beyond so um, anyway, Andrea. Getting back to to the, that that um, you created the conditions for uh, for a circle to happen two weeks after a a murder um, that that was that created uh, a lot of upheaval not only probably in the Seattle area but in in the national conversation and uh, I just wonder how how would we how well first of all how did you um, how would you recommend sharing uh, about uh, this possibility? You were saying that that you didn't know if they would be open to it, and um, and then the door opened to mm-hmm. to seeing if if something alternative might work. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we share and converse with you know like a police chief or someone uh, who's working within the current system? Um, whether or not we we have a, a relationship built yet mm-hmm. with them.
1: So I I am holding two two um, I think approaches and I follow both of them. And I, I feel like they're in sort of a dynamic tension. Um, on one on one side is sort of the systemic social change model. Like imagine if we had a structure and a system and, into, and, and engage in the conversation of what restorative justice practices would look like. Um, we've, we've been talking and sharing this work in Seattle with a vision of a pilot project or a network that would allow people to engage in restorative circles. And know about it in advance so that whenever there is a conflict, they don't have to figure out how to address it. They can simply call upon a circle. We would have trained facilitators um, in all aspects of the community you know, ready to support that and mechanisms by which um, they could be called. So that's sort of the systemic approach. And, and we've been working toward that in Seattle. Um, and I know people are working toward that throughout um, different parts of the world and that's so exciting. And then on the other end of this polarity is the emergent conflict because often people recognize that they need a system or they don't have an effective system when they actually have a real problem. People don't necessarily want to deal with conflict in a theoretical sense of how do we engage it. They want to avoid it often or you know, they just would rather not talk about that. Instead. However, if they're involved in an immediate conflict that needs some attention, they recognize, ah, what are our tools? And sometimes those tools seem inadequate. So what I've done is as you know i i have maybe the advantage in that sense of being a litigator and i represent plaintiffs people who are you know people who are injured and who have their rights violated so often in my conversations with them i explore all of their options i explore restorative options as well as more traditional legal options and so where there's an emergent conflict i'm not afraid of saying you know what there is there are many ways we can approach this and the restorative circle process is one of them in doing that in doing that if there's not already a system built and an understanding in a community that's one of the that a restorative circle is one of the options available there needs to be at least a temporary system set up so that it feels safe and that it's not just like a one-time deal. Um, Mm -hmm. What we did was I I shared with the people I could talk to. I could talk to the family members. I could talk to Rick. I could talk to the community members. And and I shared with them what the process was. And and I went through the normal pre-circles to discuss um, what the to help define what the event was or the conflict we would talk about to explore its meaning and to figure out who needed to be present and to make sure they consented and wanted to move forward with the process. So I did that, which we would normally do in a restorative circle process with those with whom I could. But with the police department, you know, we were already involved in litigation, and I wasn't going to talk to the police chief. That wasn't going to be possible. And so I did talk with um, the with Catherine Olson, who is the head of the um, Office of Professional Accountability and I explained to her the process. I had the advantage of having written some things and um, was able to send her some articles um, and said this is the process that I would propose we use. Um, and I said I would be you know, happy to offer facilitation and have a co-facilitator there. and. So we did a little more work up front saying this is what it would look like, and we would anticipate coming up with action, you know, some action agreements, and then we would have a post-circle, and the post-circle would allow us to review those action agreements and see if they actually met the needs that were addressed in the circle or not, or whether we need a new ones. And so we talked about this process, and then um, they reviewed the materials, and then they said yes. And so mm-hmm. at the circle itself, then I, I went a little, over a little bit more about what we would be doing and that... Unlike a normal conversation, there would be the reflective dialogue where where after someone expresses you know, what they have to say and what they want known, that the person who's heard it respond back what they heard them say, that deeper meaning. And, and then there can be that clarification that that was it. And so we did, you know, it took a little bit more active uh, facilitation perhaps in order to get the dialogue process going at the beginning because it's a bit unfamiliar. But I, found, I find that with this process it's simple enough that if people of goodwill actually want to do this, they will. Uh-huh. And, I've al- and I have also found um, that the, the in the police context, um, the officers are used to, they are actually kind of used to this command and control um, mentality, um, they are used to rules and following rules that when you say these are the rules of engagement, they were actually pretty good about engaging them. They're like, okay, we can do that. And they were willing to step into that, which was really refreshing. Um, and it was uh, I think it really helped to build um, an understanding. There were some really tough thing- there were very tough things said during that conversation mm-hmm. um, i wasn 't sure mm-hmm. i wasn 't sure when he got there how Rick would be, whether he would even want to talk. I know he wanted to hear from them, but i wasn 't sure he would share, and he did He did powerfully and there were a lot of issues of of um, differences of cultures and expectations, and people um, people's um, desire to be heard and to um, really sort of equalize their sense of of power, even in that circle. Um, And so it was a fluid process. And I I have to say, I wasn't sure um, I was doing the right thing when I stepped into it, when I said we should do this. Um, I had some concern because I wasn't I hadn't practiced that much and I wasn't an expert in this. Dominic Barter was really very gracious and did a pre-circle, a facilitator's pre-circle with me to to get support, and I did other um, pre-circles and felt the blessing to step into this place of the unknown and to hold the place. But yeah. even in the circle, you know, there were moments where I was really not sure, but I just had to trust in the faith of the process and the the, uh, the belief that good would come out of this. And there were times when that was challenging. In particular, I'll just share one moment, because um, Rick, who is... Um, is is from a first nations community um, really values the opportunity to look straight in a person 's eyes when he 's speaking, and the circle um, configuration involved him sitting fairly far away from the chief and so when he decided he wanted to speak to the chief at one point, he got up and he walked over to the chief and stood right in front of him and From a you know european centric um, perspective that um, closeness in contact and the fact that Rick was standing up and looking at him eye to eye could have felt really threatening. And I was actually more worried about what the police chief might do at that point um, than I was Rick. I knew I could tell that he felt passionate about what he was saying and he wanted to have that connection, but we hadn't talked about that. That hadn't been part of um, any kind of um, experience of mine. So. I sat there and just held that all of this was unfolding exactly as it should, and it did. It was beautiful. The chief was able to hear it, um, was able to um, reflect what he had heard. When Rick was done with his piece, he went and sat down, and over time, that relationship between Rick and the chief um, really deepened and solidified, and that was one of the lasting take-homes for me and lessons for me that, you know, in this process, you just let people do what they need to do to communicate what's important to them. And it's the generative wisdom of that group together and the people who are there that can really find solutions to some of these problems. Uh, And it was a powerful example of, in this process, how the facilitator does nothing but really lets go and just holds the process. Um, It doesn't Mm. try to control it. And I was – I was really taken by how it worked in in spite of these challenging circumstances.
0: Wow. Well, and I I know that that you were speaking to the fact that you had um, some action plan agreements and um, there is, uh, again, with that Seattle Times article, it's posted um, and will be posted on the Do Peace website. And it's just very interesting to have, you know, we have this need for structure, but then also like you're saying, um, it's so important to allow people to go all the way down and into that space of truth and feel safe to do so. So what I'm hearing is that the conditions were created um, and the structure was created to a certain degree, but then it also was surrendered to a certain degree as well. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. And you know, part of the beauty of this process is that you ask each person who's going to participate, who needs to be present in order to engage the conflict? And when I asked Rick that question, he immediately came up with, well, if we're going to talk with the police, I need to have Fred there. And he had a different name for him. He had a street name for this man named Fred Abuki, who was a sergeant in the department who had known his father, who knew him, who knew the family, and who had a relationship with them and whom he trusted. And so when you're talking about how do you, how do you move forward, you find those relationships. So for Rick to feel comfortable in a circle, he wanted Fred there because he knew that if it had been Fred engaging with him around these issues, that there wouldn't be the misunderstanding. There would be the, the trust and the relationship. And so he thought Fred might be someone who would be there to help be that bridge um, between um, his family and and the department, um, and so you, you, and and similarly, um, you know, we had members of two members of the community in particular who worked with the Native American community, and um, especially those who um, are are homeless or living in shelters or the streets, and the kind of um, information and um, perspective they brought was a broader community perspective, and that was a beautiful thing. And then within the department. Um, the Chief and had Command Staff people, both who were responsible for the engagement that was happening in these areas where the family was contacting the officers, but also um, people who were involved in some of the other aspects of the of the leadership of the Department, so there really could be learning that would happen and and the possibility for change over the long term so mm-hmm. People are asked who needs to be present, and you know, one facilitator who's calling this together, it's not like in a mediation or something where I can say, okay, this person has to be there or that person has to be there, or in a litigation kind of setting where you sue X, Y, and Z. Here, the whole community decides who is involved in this conflict, and it's surprising sometimes and really hopeful that the people who come around really are the ones who need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, also, I also wanted to really be clear that the, sh- the circle we had was about the interaction with the police and the family following the shooting. We did not have the opportunity to have a circle around the shooting itself. And that's something the family st- still deeply wants to have. Rick has called for that, and and we haven't formalized that, although now perhaps the conditions are ripe to try that. Um, mm. So the the person, um, the officer, officer who did the shooting um, wasn't in the circle, and we didn't actually talk about the shooting itself. The community also, in general, wasn't there and wasn't part of this. And the community has a great call-out for restorative justice and, and healing around mm-hmm. this incident and the. A whole series of other incidents involving the police department and various minority communities so the the experience we had was a great one in terms of building um, some experience and process and trust toward a different way of engaging conflict but there's still there's still much to do in order to move that forward in a systemic way and to address other um, needs in the community because the needs of the family were different than the needs of the community at large, and okay. some of those still um, are longing, I think, for some attention.
0: I, I'm am really um, fascinated that you 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 brought that up because I'm I was just thinking about that very aspect and and uh, of community and given that communities are affected by these things deeply, um, and even regions or worlds really and um, I'm wondering, on the ground in Seattle, do you have something that you—I mean—is there a, a monthly kind of informal gathering, or is there something that's that's ongoing that is considered uh, a restorative circle or uh, a group that is, uh, you know, that that's known that you can come to if if conflict. Um, presents itself and, and people wish to come forward and and be in circle with support and and with um, each other in this way, or how is that working now for you all so
1: so the I would say that it 's emerging we are we are we are in the process of developing more of a structure around supporting that, and um, part of it is engaging in, with different communities and centers that um, or organizations that want to have a restorative process and are developing the capacity to support that. We have a regular practice group um, once a month um, where we practice this work and people are invited to come. We've been sharing the work um, quarterly or so, and both of those are at the Center for Spiritual Living in Seattle. Um, we have a website through Compassionate Seattle. Um, we we are the first city to have adopted the charter um, the Charter for Compassion as a city and are part of the Compassionate um, um, cities initiative um, internationally, mm-hmm. and so part of that is in the justice system how do we build uh, how do we build this infrastructure and this network of practitioners mm-hmm. and organizations and people in neighborhoods so that when conflicts happen we really can um, we can address them this way so part of part of what we're doing is working with individual organizations and communities that have interest to develop their own systems and then working toward networking those systems so we can support one another. So for instance, in my family, if I have a conflict and I want to call a circle, which I did for the first time um, a couple of weeks ago, I can rely Mm -hmm. on another facilitator and practitioner to come in and support my family because my whole family needed to be part of that. And so, you know, how do we support one another in, in that process? So that is happening. Um, Conversations are also still happening within the police department and the community as well about can we engage this work. And I'm encouraged that at the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, um, there will be a panel on the 18th in uh, San Diego where um, Assistant Chief Stanford and Catherine Olson and I will be talking about our experience with restorative circles and how that might work in terms of building community trust. And so my challenge was, and still is, okay, let's give – Let's let's actually use this. How can we use this one example in other conflicts? And so my, right. really my invitation is, if anyone sees the, if anyone imagines a restorative possibility, I am willing to facilitate and support. You know, I'm willing to engage in that. And so, and there are other practitioners in the community who've been practicing this work and would be willing to help facilitate and engage that work too. Um, we're building that um, and would like to continue to build that so every community has... Has, um people in it that can actually serve facilitation for their own conflicts. So we're building that over time and, and at first when I when I first became aware of this work I just wanted it to happen all at once. And it's taken time <laughs> to change the consciousness and to build the the critical mass of people who could do you know could really support such a system. But we've you know we we came up with this idea of a pilot project of of Seattle having this parallel structure um, that's on our compassionate Seattle website. And I see that happening. It's emerging more slowly than I had initially thought and it's not a linear process. But as conflicts happen, as people engage it, you know, as I do this in my work, in my legal practice, and as communities um, embrace this in their own organizations, I see it happening. I see things shifting and I'm really excited about the possibility of where it will all bring us because every time someone uses this or a community has introduced it, that has ripple effects. It has effects and how we are as a larger whole and at some point there's a tipping point where people do see um, the capacity to hold people accountable and to dig deep and get that real truth out there and then to find some solutions to these things that ail us and um, I, I really do have hope that um, this can be um, the foundation or one of the foundations for lasting change mm.
0: well, and it, and of course it, um, In our own lives and in our communities right in our you know in our immediate backyards we share um, our common humanity and and we all have day-to-day things that rise and um, conflict is not uh, something that is in any um, scarcity (laughs) and so being able to even just step in together to a place where like you're saying where you can come together and practice. Uh, I know that
1: um, Dominic
0: barter and, and many of of us probably on this call have have um, done practice circles where um, someone will will bring up just you know what's what's up right now. and mm-hmm. um, And sometimes that involves the the direct people that have been involved, but there's also a way to do it with surrogates as well, right? Mm-hmm. And
1: um, well, yeah and so in the what we do are these semi-simulated practice circles where someone brings a real conflict and every and the other people sort of stand in the place of the um important people in that conflict and then we so we have an actual circle um that's very real for the person but involves mm-hmm. different um folks who are pra- who are practicing and I'll tell you um it is profound in terms of of the real-life experience you get um, in practicing facilitation, but also in um, the learning that happens about the conflict that is is real. And I've Mm -hmm. seen some, you know, it's not, the purpose of this is not a therapeutic effect, but I've seen some major gains in understanding and healing happen even from the practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things before we go too far off of the John T. Williams shooting and the and the restorative efforts of that circle, I also want to give voice to uh, another thing that Rick Williams did that was huge for our community and um, he had uh, he followed a vision that his brother um, as a master carver um, should be remembered by an honor totem and he created a he created a he and led a public art project that involved um, a you know 34 foot totem pole carved from a cedar log um, from the Northwest forests, and was a public process in that he sketched out how it would work, but uh, everyone. From this community and internationally, was was invited to come and carve on that pole. Um, mm. It was then painted and carried through the streets of Seattle by hand um, by you know hundreds of of supporters, and we raised it the traditional way up at the Seattle Center grounds, and it's there now, and it's a beautiful testament to the Native American carving tradition, and to the peaceful response that Rick and others. Um, Uh, really brought into being as a result of of the shooting, out of this tragedy, something beautiful was born and and a memory of um, John T. Williams. And so mm-hmm. um, the, it, the, you can find this on thejtwproject.org, and I think you put a link on the website. But that is another example of that flame of restoration of wanting something good to come out of tragedy and some learning to come out of this. And we're in the process of now raising funds for a contemplative uh, plaza around that pole and people if they want can contribute to that project by buying a tile and engraving something on it and wow. uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful example of, of how art and community can come around and following the inquest okay, so we have this trial and um, all the legal process that happens, but in that process um, there was also this parallel public art project and so witnesses and others who had been had been touched by this tragedy came, and they were able to do something very productive in terms of putting their energy into the pole and to creating the art and to the community that was surrounding that. So I just... um, I'm in awe of how that also occurred out of this, and the learning that came from that. And now that totem pole holds court with that great space needle that we have, and sort of this conversation between mm. modernity and tradition. And it's just a beautiful mm. thing that is part of Seattle's architecture and its history now.
0: Wow, and it, and I was noticing too in in the um, the PDF that that uh, includes some some of the post uh a initial circle that happened two weeks after the the shooting um that there was an invitation to um meet in the park um wasn't there mm. to for some of the members of the circle to just um relate to each other and yes. when you were sharing with me about i think I've been to to that spot that you're describing but to me it feels like like such a key need in our communities to have a central place like this to come and I, and and to gather and not unlike what what has happened with the Occupy movement in some ways, a, a place to come and to to relate to each other and to, to contemplate uh, our truth and and um, and to know one another on a, on an authentic level. Yes. Mhm. So I just, you know, we have a robust group here tonight, and I just don't want to let the time slip by too much further without um, making sure that you know that if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to bring forward to the circle tonight, please press 1 on your keypad. Um, We're going to be wrapping up here shortly with Andrea. And um, I just again want to point to, um, maybe Andrea you could could repeat that website, it was the jtw.org, um, jtwproject.org, is that
1: correct? The, the jtwproject.org, yes. That's for the totem pole project. And if you're um, interested in um, the um ongoing work that we're doing, you can contact me by email or go to the Compassionate Seattle um, website as well. We have a restorative circles group and um, although we don't use that that much, it might be a good way for, for people to engage um, in conversation.
0: Great. And we also have a discussion board um, over at the Do Peace website where uh, the, the audio archive from tonight's council will be posted. But certainly, um, that's Compassionate Seattle, uh, Compassionate Cities. Or can can you tell the, repeat the website again for that? For the, um, for the if you if
1: you just Google Compassionate Seattle, you'll find the website that way. Okay. As part of the Compassionate Great. Action Network International, yeah.
0: So Andrea, in moving towards closing tonight, you and I had a profound sharing. A couple of days ago, and one of the things that struck me so deeply about what you shared was um, uh, the alignment of uh, of your you know of your own work. And of, of course, you covered a bit tonight about the patience and um, that you know really good things and important things take time. But could could you just share with us in closing how uh, how do we understand ourselves in um, you know, we, we certainly are in the midst of a, of a huge transformation systemically, but we're also transforming as individuals and, uh, in our understanding of ourselves and each other and how we can hold each other and relate to each other in a way that, um, you know, is not new certainly, but it seems to be uh, coming back to the forefront perhaps. And and what you shared the other day uh, just really touched me deeply about having that inner alignment with what's going on in the outer realms, mm-hmm. and I wondered if you might close tonight by sharing a bit about that and, and yeah. how that relates to this work.
1: Well, and I, I think I think the word integration is the one I'll bring up again because what I've come to recognize that is that in doing this work in the world, and um, I mean around conflicts that involve others or involve community that I'm part of, I'm not separate from that. I'm part of that community, but it's separate enough that I recognize that. I can still feel some distance if I'm somewhat professional about it. But in order to do this work well and in order to do it in a meaningful way, you're asking people to step into conflicts that are most meaningful to them. And you're doing it in a way that you're willing as a practitioner to be moved and to be changed by what happens because you are part of the community that that is is impacted by that conflict. What I recognized though, in, that, in doing this work is that there were areas in my life where I was out of alignment, where I was out of integrity with the deep trust and the hope and the commitment to a love-based process where I was feeling conflict, where I was feeling out of alignment. And I realized I hadn't, Invoked this process, or the community of support for my own conflicts, and so I realized that the work was working me, and that for me to step into this deeper, I really needed to um, do my own healing on, on and 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 called a circle um, in what has been my most significant relationship in my life with my husband. And I realized there were ways in which I was out of alignment and in my relationship with him. And so I called the circle and called upon our community of friends and family to support us. And in doing that, miracles unfolded. And I realized what we're doing here is we are courting miracles. We are stepping into love. We are stepping into community. We are willing to be as naked and vulnerable as we need to be in order to break through these old patterns that aren't serving us anymore. And so that process of having stepped into it for my own conflict, for my own um, tensions, um, and having the very painful conversations, the really hard conversations, but those that are allowing me to break through into another level of relationship that I've been longing for for a long time, um, I see that as a miracle. I see that as transformation. And having done that for myself, I feel so much, um, I think, I guess, more authentic and able to assist others when they're seeking to address those conflicts that matter most in their lives. So the process is not for the lighthearted. What I've come to realize is that um, doing this work, um, for me anyway, requires that alignment. I want to be aligned with my own needs, absolutely clearly, so that I am standing in a place of the greatest love, the greatest power that I can be in, and that requires integrity. Both that I am meeting my own needs in this process, and I'm getting the support I need. That I'm meeting that I'm in relationships that have that kind of integrity and have that kind of openness and that trust and where I'm actually addressing real problems and not pretending they're not there and that therefore in community I can show up the same way and support us um, in in tackling um, some of those really old and sometimes really generational conflicts that um, that seem to just keep erupting over and over again into... Um, tensions and violence. We we can overcome this, and I think part of it is to be willing to do the deep work first um, in yourself to recognize that we're all broken and we're all whole at the same time, and that by by knowing that of ourselves, we can recognize that in the other, and together we can come together and share the responsibility and share the power for um, what it is that we are creating for our own communities.
0: Mm. Wow. Well, it it has just been so wonderful to have you in circle with us tonight, Andrea. And I just, um, again, want to encourage people to please, let's continue the conversation with Andrea uh, on the Compassionate Seattle um, page or also at the dopeace.us US page where, again, you will find the archive of this call and all other councils um, posted in a timely way and resources uh, that we are continuing to build um, so that uh, we have a place that we can tap into on a regular basis and know that there's, there's information and materials there that might be helpful for what we're up to in our individual lives and in our communities. And I also would like to just reference, uh, for those of you who don't uh, know, the Restorative uh, Circles website is restorativecircles.org, and you can also find Restorative Circles on Facebook uh, with that same organizational name. Um, and so just just again, Andrea, thank you so much for your time and sharing so deeply with us. and. Um, for all of you who have joined us from wherever you have come in in the world, I hope you have a wonderful evening or, or night, and I just would like to invite you to come back next week. Our council next week will be with um, another incredible being in the realm of, of uh, integration, and her name is Sujata Baliga. She's from the Bay Area, and she works with uh, the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, and is the founder and executive director of the Paragate Project, um, which explores forgiveness. And she was also um, in that same issue that that, uh, um, Andrea was in, of the Tikkun article. Um, So tonight, thank you for being with us in Circle, and uh, come back and join us again in the next week or two, and uh, Andrea, thank you again.
1: Thank you, Molly. All right. Good Good night. night,
0: everyone.